Um, God has certainly done incredible things in our midst, in us and through us. And um, it's been a really fun week getting to hang with you guys and to dig into God's word together. Um, And uh, we've done a lot. Um, We had masks that we hid behind in fear and security and shame. And we nailed those to the cross and chose to be brave and to be our truest selves before God. And after this morning, um, before each other, we carried around rocks of sin that were heavy and frustrating and inconvenient. And it changed the way that we lived and walked. And we surrendered those this morning at the foot of the cross, choosing instead to pick up the forgiveness of God. Um, Out in our fire pit, there's ashes of what once was. And the amazing thing is, is if we were to go out there and try to take those ashes and piece them together to read what we ask God to forgive us for and free us from, it would be impossible, right? Ashes just dust and quickly blows away with the wind. We've spent hours together confessing, getting real, digging into the word, praying and worshiping. And we've emptied our hands and hearts of sin shame, secrecy, and the weight of sin. But tonight, we empty our hearts and pockets of, anyone want to guess? Not sin, kind of sin. Not close, that's good though. How about idols? Everyone say idols. And I'm not talking idols like American Idol, okay? And I'm not talking about idols as in the little Buddha statues that are set up in nail salons, all right? If you've seen those before. But idols, rather, are the things that you and I cling so tightly to. They say, if you follow where someone spends their time and where they spend their money... That is what they care the most about. And so often in scripture it talks about idols and it's one of the Ten Commandments. It says, thou shalt not have an idol before me. That's a holy God speaking. And most of us would say, okay, that's no problem. There is no little fat bronze Buddha statue in my room at home. But the reality is every single one of us has idols in our lives. And we're going to look, Garrett, this one's for you. We're going to go to the first, the front part of the Bible, and we're going to look at 1 Samuel 5. So everyone turn there. 1 Samuel chapter 5. Chapter 5. 1 Samuel. Everyone there? Waiting on the clog. (laughs) More ways than one. First Samuel chapter 5. 
waiting on some of you to find the scriptures like waiting on the toilet to flush. See what I did there? That was, sorry, but that was very dumb. No. You're right, that was dumb. All right, let's jump into 1 Samuel chapter 5. You guys can get me a uh, joke book if you want. All right, here we go, verse 1. Now pay attention to what jumps out at you, okay? When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, And he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of God to Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Okay, what stands out to you? Dagon. Why does Dagon stand out to you? Huh? Who's Dagon? Who's Dagon? Great question. Let's start there. Who was Dagon? Does anyone know who Dagon was? Close. Was Dagon a real person? No. No. Dagon was the fish god of the Philistines. So it was some sort of statue that resembled their fish god. And back in Bible times, there were lots of people who worshipped lots of different gods other than the one true God because they believed in their fish gods, that their fish gods were going to rescue them and save them. Now question. Let's test your smartness. So far, you're brilliant. You ready? What are idols typically made of? Stone. Stone, right? Um, Does stone break cleanly? No. 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 No, if you break... It crumbles, okay? 
If you were to break a stone, if I somehow were able to pull one of these large stones out of the wall, and I said, I want you to carve um, a fish out of that stone, how would you do that? Grinder. Grinder? What other tools might you use? A chisel. A rock saw. A chisel. So back in Bible times, they probably used a chisel. Do you have 100% precision with a chisel? No. No? Okay, so go back to those verses. What was the first thing that happened to Dagon? He got knocked down. He got knocked down. Do statues typically just fall over? Are statues light or heavy? Heavy. Heavy, right? Do you think there was a giant wind gust that blew through the, the house? No. So is anyone else asking the question along with me, how did Dagon, that statue, yes. fall? Okay. So they went back in. I'm pretty sure we'll get there. So they set it back up, right? And remember, this was their fish god. It wasn't just a statue. It wasn't just like a really important relic in the house. It it was a big deal. It was something sacred to them. So they set it back up, and then they go in the next day. And how did they find Dagon? Arms, Arms, and, Arms and head cut off. And what? So everyone's saying, hmm. hmm. Thank you. I have two participants. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to participants. I'll hook you all up later. Okay, so... Was it the night shift janitor that went in there and decided to chisel off the head and arms? So, now that we know what Dagon is and what's happening, it's leading us to ask more questions. Like, why is this happening? Right? And how is this happening? Okay? So, what else stands out to you about this passage? There's, there's something else in this passage that's very important that most people don't know what it is or what it represents. Can you? Can you pick that out? Like everywhere they the Ark of God. The Ark of God. Does anyone here know what the Ark of God represented? Back in Bible times? It represented the very presence of God. It was like this chest that Joshua and the others would carry around with them. And there were very specific rules. Couldn't touch the ground. It was to be revered and treated as holy and sacred. If we were having this camp this week back in Bible times, no doubt there would have been an ark of God that you guys would have had to carry in here and you wouldn't have been able to do to do your cup game or your card flinging tricks or your dodgeball stunts around that ark of God because it represented the very presence of a very holy God. It was sacred. But what's the one thing in this entire text that we just read? What was the one thing that it seemed like nobody wanted? The Ark of God. God. So, there was a misunderstanding here. They revered and worshipped Dagon, this fish god. But they had no reverence or respect for the Ark of God, which represented the presence of God. Okay? The idol, Dagon, could not stand before the very presence of God. So here's the question for us tonight. What are some of the idols that we have in our lives? Um, huh? Famous people. Cuts and cell 
Phones. What's something that you couldn't live without? Fish and pole. Phones. Fish and pole. Huh? Walmart. Food. Walmart. Okay, that's a real thing. Some people have a real Amazon addiction. Okay. Um, idols. Let me define it for us, and then maybe you can answer it more easily. Ready? Idols are anything that we put before God. Let me break that down for us. Because most of us would say, well, I don't put anything before God. Idols are anything that you spend more time with, looking at, doing, or valuing more than you value or spend time with God. So based on that definition, what are some idols in our lives today? Phones, TV, electronics, social media, sports, our status, our friends, maybe a relationship we have, Uh, followers, fans, fame, self, accomplishments, athletic achievements, our status as great kids or good students or awesome athletes. These are all things, even our own rule following or religious practices can become idols. And the problem with idols is this. They always disappoint. They never save us. And only God is worthy of our worship, attention, and adoration. Do you think when we get to heaven one day and stand face to face with Christ, it will matter how many state championships we have? Do you think our trophy or ribbon collections in our rooms will matter? What about our biggest catch on a river? No. What about how many friends we had? Or how many followers? Or how we were trending? Or maybe a video or a post of ours went viral? What will matter when we stand face to face with Christ? Our love for Him. And how we live our lives. Right? So the question is this then why do we spend so much time clinging tightly to those things? Why do you guys think that is? Because it puts ourselves before him. Okay, because it puts ourselves before him. And don't we all like to keep ourselves happy? Yeah, isn't it? Isn't life more fun and great when life is about us? When people are like, oh man, that was an awesome run you had returning that kick off. Oh, that was an awesome play. That's an, that's an awesome car. Right? Why else do we cling tightly to those things over Jesus? What do you think? Because we want to be happy now. Because we want to be happy now, right? Instant gratification, that's a big thing in our current world. We want to be happy now. I am not a patient person. Um, it is a character flaw of mine, and I'm trying to work on it, but I struggle to wait patiently. I think it's also something that we cling to above Jesus because it's what we know. We don't really know prayer in that way, do we? Prayer's kind of weird. Prayer's like, uh, who am I talking to and what do I say? How do I say it? I don't know. Worship is kind of weird, isn't it? We're not really big worshipers because it's a little uncomfortable. And why are we singing and who are we singing to? And this is... Weird that we're all sitting in a circle and singing and I don't even know the words to the song. Digging in the scripture can be weird and intimidating like we talked about a couple days ago, right? 
we, we tend to go where we are comfortable and where we know the outcome. We like playing sports because it's fun and we're competitive and we want to win and maybe we're good at it. We want to play on our phones because it entertains us. Right? What would a life lived for the glory and honor and fame and name of Jesus alone look like? What do you guys think? If you lived your life for the glory of Jesus alone, here's what I mean by that. If you lived your life in a way that made Jesus famous, what would that look like in your world? Someone give me something. How, how would your life look different, maybe? Go to church more? Okay. Something else? No more answers to questions. Okay. Okay. Someone else? Someone over on this couch? If you lived your life so that Jesus would be put on display in your life and not you, how might your life look a little different? What do you guys think? Huh? Making bad decisions. Making bad decisions. You would make less or you'd make more? You would make more bad decisions? Less. Less bad decisions. I'm just making sure I heard. I think I got some river water in my ears. Okay? So, here's some questions. And then we're going to wrap up. Here's some questions. And I want you to honestly consider these in your heart. Look, you guys have done an amazing job of being honest this week. You really have. So you might as well just finish this week being gut honest, okay? And, and I'm not asking you to answer out loud, but just consider in your heart who or what is on display in your life. When people look at you, do they just see you? Or do they see Jesus? When you speak, do people hear you? Or do they hear Jesus? Who or what is on display in your life? Is it you? Is it me, myself, and I? Is it what you've achieved? Or is it Christ and what he achieved on the cross on your behalf? You and I have no good thing apart from Christ. And tonight, we have some idols to smash. But again, if you don't mean it and you're not ready, there's no judgment here. Please don't participate if you're not there. That's okay. Okay? It doesn't mean anything if you don't mean it. John Piper, um, he's a, a pastor, a preacher, an author. He's one of my favorites, and he says this. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Do you find, the most of, do you find your satisfaction most in Jesus? Or is it in your your sports? Is it in your phone? Is it in your YouTube? God is most satisfied in us when we are most satisfied in Him. If you went home from camp and you never got your cell phone back, would you be okay? Yes. Yes, I would. 
If you're not, if you're not, that might be an idol. If you went home from camp and your boyfriend or girlfriend broke up with you and you wouldn't be okay, that might be an idol. If you go home from camp and you had to get rid of your Xbox or your PlayStation or whatever your thing is, your Switch, and you wouldn't be okay, that might be an idol. God is most satisfied in us when we are most satisfied in him. Every longing and need and desire we have is found in Christ alone. Everything else is a scam. Psalm 1611 says this. Let me read it real quick. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Whatever your idol is, it cannot stand before Jesus. If you claim to love Jesus and to know Jesus, if you claim to be a Christian, and there is something that you love more than Jesus, that's an idol. And just like Dagon in 1 Samuel 5, that fish god literally could not stand before the very presence of God. Whatever it is in our lives that we cling tightly to, it won't last. And you can either get rid of it, or God can get rid of it for you. What do you think is the easier, less painful thing to do? For us to get rid of it. Absolutely. Right? Listen to this. Some of the words are a little bit deep, but it's really profound. And then we're going to wrap up in a pretty cool way tonight. Lewis says that Lewis saw the basis in human experience. St. Paul shows, shows it in a letter to the Philippians. Here's the great discovery as I first found it in Lewis's book, Reflections on the Psalms. He is discovering why God's demand for our praise is not vain. The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise unless shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought in to check it. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their lovers, readers their favorite poet, Walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious minds praised most, while the cranks, misfits, praised least. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmist, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. 
My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable what we delight to do, what we indeed we can't help doing about everything else we value. I think here's where it gets simpler. Are you still with me? Stay with me. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep telling on one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. And there it was. God's relentless command that we see him as glorious and praise him is a command that we settle for nothing less than the completion of our joy in him. Praise is not just the expression, but the consummation of our joy in what is supremely enjoyable, namely God. In his presence is fullness of joy at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. In demanding our praise, he is demanding the completion of our pleasure. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Let's look at Philippians chapter 1 real quick. Philippians chapter 1, we're looking at verses 20 and 21. Philippians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. It says this. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Let's look at 1 John chapter 2. All the way towards the end. First John chapter 2. Verse 16. Actually, I'm going to read 15 through 17. That's our theme verse. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh... And the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Tonight we're talking about idols. Is it a sin to have an Xbox? No. No. Is it a sin to enjoy playing video games? No. Is it a sin to play sports and be good at it? No. Is it a sin to value and to love and to hold that up as the best thing over Jesus' sin? Yes. Yes. And just like Dagon, the fish god of the Philistines, literally could not stand before the presence of God, whatever your idol is, cannot and will not stand before the presence of God. Tonight, um, we're going to give you guys an opportunity to address idols in your life. And just like all the things we've done this week with the rocks, 
and the confession and the papers of sin that we burned and the fire and the masks. Um, this is not a forced thing. You have a choice to participate or not. And I don't want you to participate if you truly don't mean it from your heart. Because otherwise you're just going through motions. But I want you guys to consider what idols might be in your life. And I'm going to play a song and I want you to listen to the words of the song. But I also want you to listen to what God might be speaking to you about what your idol is.